what happens as a problematic is that many of us are overqualified because of our skills, but underqualified because of language. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Valentina, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. I'm humbled and thank you for having me. Of course. You are the co-founder and partnership curator for Capacity Zurich an incubator for startups built by refugees or migrants. And before we talk about that great initiative, I want to learn more about your personal background. So your family is originally from Colombia, but then eventually you moved to the US. When did that happen? That happened back when I was 16, almost 17. I had just finished high school. I know it's a bit earlier than most people would. Mm-hmm. But I had been trying to go to the U.S. for quite a few years because my mom left when I was 13. So it was a couple of years that we didn't see each other. And I got visas denied multiple times. But finally, after lots of trial and error and being a very avid, resourceful teenager, I managed to find a crack in the system. Not just kidding, just submit everything in the right way to make sure that I could make it as an international student in the U.S. Amazing. So it was more also for study reasons, but also to reunite with your family to a certain degree. Both reasons. Yeah. Primarily to reunite with my mom, but obviously university was my goal. So I really, really wanted to go to the US and be able to study. Makes sense. And you did study there. You studied communications at the California State University. And shortly after graduating, you also went to work for the UN in Singapore. So while also still getting your master's in diplomacy and gender policy. So that's a a hell of a CV. So I want to know, first of all, when did you actually first become interested in advocating for women's rights? Great question. I did get interested. Well, it's it's a family legacy. I, I come from a family of feminists, a matriarchy of a mom, single mom, uh, grandmother. I was raised by my grandmother, my aunt and my mom. So it was a really powerhouses in the house. <laughs> and they inspired me. They were all working mothers. And uh, that was really important to me to be able to kind of continue that legacy and give back also economically, not that those mothers or people who stay at home do not. They also contribute economically. But um, for me, it was very important that I would continue that. And uh, that was kind of the first um, realization into my world that it was a bit of a different family structure. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when I was in the U.S. already doing my bachelor's, I had a brilliant class by a professor called Shira Tarrant, who's a feminist uh, writer, political scientist in the U.S., and she just inspired me profoundly. I was maybe 18 years old when I took her class, and it was just brilliant, mind-blowing. It really opened up my world of possibilities when it comes to perhaps blindsided, or it actually everything made sense in my world, not just from uh, the fact that I was a you know female Latin American navigating the world in a foreign country, but rather... How does that, how does everything around gender affect society, not just women, but also men and everything in between? And what are the expressions of our gender and how does that matter 
in the world. So then uh, everything slightly started kind of naturally fitting in a puzzle that made sense in my world, but also it was a way for me to understand and to make sense of what was happening around me. So I think it's fantastic mm -hmm. to hear the role models that you have, not only from your own family, but also at the university with the professor. Was there anything that really sticked with you that stood out from, from these classes that you took there? Oh, gosh, yes, so many things. I remember that before taking that class, for me, I mean, I did read uh, quite a bit into feminism and had found it super insightful, but actually she made me understand. I was always, I, I love many different facets of my identity and I'm, I love being, or I guess what most people would consider a feminine woman. And for me, before then, I thought that it was not uh, mutually, or it was mutually exclusive to be a feminine woman and also be a feminist. And through her class, actually, I managed to learn a lot about beyond that and beyond kind of the stereotypical uh, concepts that we hold, thinking that mm -hmm. that's the kind of the only view of something. And it actually allowed me to understand the world from a perspective of choice, of that all of us have the choice to express ourselves in different ways. That was kind of the first personal realization, but it goes beyond that. It was also understanding my mother's story as an illegal migrant in the US. It was understanding the struggles of many people and how social challenges actually um, can be explained through a feminist lens, most importantly through an intersectional feminist lens. That means that it's looking into the different segments of identity that we all have and how do they intersect and dictate the number of opportunities that a person would have in a given context. Mm -hmm. And that was mind-blowing when it comes to identifying and analyzing systemic discrimination in the world, but also in the workplace, at home, in public. And that was kind of my, my journey understanding uh, feminism through this class, but obviously beyond that, then it was kind of a spillover effect of things that I was interested in. Wow, a really impactful class, so to speak. <laughs> Definitely, yes. So you got the, the feminist perspective mm -hmm. there and, and the drive to also change something in the world. At the same time, I also wonder, you also act, are active as an entrepreneur today. So where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Do you have any entrepreneurs in the family or is that just mm -hmm. something in your DNA? Uh, yeah, where, where does that drive come from? Wow. That's also a really interesting question because it makes me reflect. <laughs> I I think I do have entrepreneurial spirit. I mm -hmm. did go to an alternative education school that really challenged us in the way that we looked at the world and that we it asked us to kind of challenge the status quo, to not take anything for granted and to always question things around us. And I think this was a beautiful stepping stone into going my own way and being very resourceful, but also being a little bit rebellious. And when you are a bit rebellious against the system and you are in structures that are very, I guess, uh, linear and monolithic, you try to go out of your way. And I think when I, what I realized is that being an employee in many different contexts was, I mean, I was lucky to have fantastic teams. But I always had a little bit of an extra vision for what I wanted to do. And I felt trapped because I couldn't really like unleash my wild self and vision and mission of what I what this organization could be. Uh, so then looking back into my family, I think they themselves were like that every time 
since we were little, my mother was very active on asking questions and actually having conversations with us. And um, when we would ask a question, she would ask it back. And then we would have to think about why did I ask that question? And if I wanted something, she would say, fantastic, maybe I cannot get it for you. But what would you do to get that? And that actually kind of a way of being raised allowed us as a family to, or as, at least for her kids, to be incredibly curious and mm -hmm. to always kind of go and advocate for what we believed in and what we cared about. That's amazing. I think that's a really great background to, to grow up with, to, yeah. to have that spirit in your family. Then you've been offering your expertise on gender issues for over 10 years, but it was only in 2016 that you then decided to create your own social impact initiative the incubator capacity in Zurich. So first of all, what does the Capacity Zurich program actually consist of? What do you do? <laughs> Thank you. I must give credit to uh, our founders and co-founders. So yes, we are a startup incubator for persons with refugee and migrant background who would like to start a business or a social cultural initiative. It can be a for or a nonprofit. And it's essentially an education Provide, we're education providers, we're entrepreneurial education providers. We democratize the access to um, entrepreneurial education for our community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would give them a credit because I was not the one that came up with the idea, so I cannot uh, claim that. But what I can do is give you a little bit of background on the founder or one of the founders that uh, came up with the idea. She is a psychiatrist who had been working with victims of war and torture for many years. And she identified a common pattern amongst her patients. And this was that primarily, but not exclusively with highly qualified refugees and migrants that came with tertiary education degrees. Um, they were stuck because they were not as well served by the integration system in Switzerland as uh, perhaps those that came uh, in, a, in younger ages or with lower qualifications. So mm -hmm. what she realized is that as work is, as you know, is very, very essential for our identity here. The first thing yeah. you get asked when you go to a networking event is like, hey, what do you do? Right. Where do you come from? And these two questions are incredibly difficult for many of our community members to answer. Because if you do come and you re invested a tremendous amount of resources in your education and you did have great background experience, but you cannot use that here in this context. That was one of the common patterns to go into being dependent on social welfare, into being isolated, into uh, not being able to rec reclaim your dignity and mm -hmm. uh, simply to be able to work and make a living. And so that many of us actually bought into that idea. What she decided was like, hey, let's create a system that is the vehicle to achieve inclusion and integration and to be able to use our own skills as migrants and refugees and uh, to use it through entrepreneurship. So entrepreneurship is kind of the way, but it's not the end goal. Yeah. Is entrepreneurship the right way? Because, you know, it's very difficult for people with, with the talent and the skill set coming from abroad as migrants or refugees to actually find employment here. So it's easier to sort of start your own company or your own initiative instead of getting employed at a Swiss company. Is that the real issue behind it or how would you describe it? You nailed it. <laughs> yes, it is the real issue. So initially, one of the core objectives of capacity was to create a labor market integration program because the reason behind the problematic 
is the access to the labor market for especially for highly qualified individuals. So uh, as you know, in Switzerland, half of your CV, your first page at least of your CV is personal data, including a photograph, which is illegal in many countries around the world. And because of that and your marital status, your nationality, your permit, and uh, etc. Everything else that you should have um, if you follow the standards of CV writing in Switzerland, that's already giving entities and companies, or or for a person who would review those CVs, or even for an algorithm, to have, to be prone for bias, right? And the problem is beyond that. It's not necessarily even if we take that into account, not the biases into account, we still look at a system that is incredibly. Um, I wouldn't say ignorant, I think that's a bit offensive, but just teams and organizations and companies that are not equipped with the right legal frameworks to understand how to hire refugees and migrants. So the problem goes beyond that. It's not just that they don't want to sometimes, it's just that it's so difficult because of obviously the decentralization of power in Switzerland, the Gemeinde to Gemeinde, Canton to Canton rules. It's very difficult for companies to understand this. Uh, process. So this is one of the things we do. We do in our advocacy roles, in our access program, which we want to bring forward hopefully soon, uh, which is also on labor market integration, to be able to um, educate, but also beyond educating, just having conversations with individuals in Swiss companies and beyond Swiss companies, also multinationals, anybody who operates here on how to hire refugees and migrants, which is actually much easier than people think it is. And most people here unless they are asylum seekers, which we will touch upon later, um, they are actually able and have a right working permit. But most people think that most refugees are in one category and they cannot work by default. And that's not necessarily true. To me, I mean, I can only imagine how frustrating that must be uh, in terms of an experience. You are super skilled. uh, You want to work, but you can't work. And I think it's also very interesting the way that you solve the issue of helping them to start their own companies or their own initiatives mm-hmm. to actually get, you know, their, their feet on the ground and start mm-hmm. uh, start their, their initiative and, and find a good connection in Switzerland. So my question is, who can actually apply to become part of your program? Do you have any, you know, guidelines who you want to work with and who's not a good fit? We do. And before we move into the guidelines, I really wanted to share something personal, because as you mentioned at the beginning or throughout the presentation or who I am, one of the things that I noticed is that, well, I've, I've worked, as you said, in, you know, even in Colombia as an intern, but beyond that in the US, in Switzerland, slightly a little bit in France. And then I never spent more than two weeks without employment. Ever since I'm 16, I've been working alongside my studies. And I always had employment equi- at the level of qualification that I had. Or even sometimes I was underqualified, but a little bit resourceful and uh, managed to get the roles. And when I got to Switzerland, I was transferred to Geneva, so I had a job. But then once I decided to go from Geneva to Zurich to find, like thinking, oh, a piece of cake, I'm going to find a, a, you know, a job in a month and I'll right. take a month off. And then, you know, I'll just carry on with my, you know, professional career. And it took me about 1.5 years to Whoa. find employment that was still de-skilled and still underpaid. Uh, and this is the reality. If that was the reality for me as a highly qualified individual who spoke multiple languages, who was really into learning German, uh, speaking German at a, at a C1 level and Swiss German like 
being exposed to it, so still understanding maybe at a 70% at the time, I could not imagine how it would be for anybody else. So then this is when we came up with the criteria of as a collective team of experiencing the same thing through mm -hmm. different perspectives and different perhaps um, sectors of, of operations. What we realized is that let's look at ourselves and what we faced in, in terms of obstacles and barriers. And now then let's look at the community of, of persons that come from either the criteria is that you have for someone to apply is that they have to be either asylum seekers in Switzerland, that means that they have an N permit. Um, we have a uh, lower percentage of end permits because they are the only ones that are a bit difficult when it comes to, not them, but the, the system makes it a right. bit tougher because they are not yet recognized as refugees and they cannot, they are not allowed to work yet mm -hmm. or they have to get permission to work. Then, uh, you, or you can be a recognized refugee. That means it can be with a permit uh, B, uh, F, or obviously then if you are already gone into C or getting naturalized, that's, that's fine as long as you've actually come through an asylum seeking and refugee process. Or you can be a migrant from a country at risk of humanitarian crisis that, or environmental crisis. And that's a little bit more ad hoc because it depends. We would have to look into, you know, the case to case basis. But beyond that, we also look at uh, gender at gender expression, but also at sex. So basically whether you're a female, male and how you identify yourself for mm -hmm. representation matters. We look at language level of, they have to speak either English or German at a B1, B2 level mm -hmm. because the program is bilingual and therefore they have to be able to go through the programs. Right. And uh, we also look at, we have a kind of system for we don't like this word, but it's, I guess, a needs system. So how much in terms of financial need the person would be in terms of uh, perhaps emotional need or emotional vulnerability? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, I guess, we don't look at uh, vulnerability only in terms of migration status, but also what's going on in this person's life and how much do they need to be in our program and how much they cannot be in another program, basically. So that's the last kind of right. level of criteria we look at this person's story and we realize, okay, how much can we offer and would this person be able to take any other incubator? And mm -hmm. if the answer for that is yes, then perhaps we're not necessarily the right per place for this person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I just got goosebumps when you described <laughs> your personal story. To me, this is just such mind-blowing experience that you just described that you as a very skilled person, international person with a, you know, a fantastic background, it took you one and a half years to find a job here in Zurich. What did that do to you? How do you feel in that moment? Because that must have been incredibly tough, especially coming in with the expectation, hey, I've worked in Geneva, now finding a job in Zurich will be a piece of cake. Mm. How did you handle that on the personal and emotional level? It was incredibly tough. And I'm not only talking for myself, but also this is what our collective experience or shared experience as a community is, is feeling First of all, you blame yourself because you think, oh, I'm doing something wrong, right? And then you start, I personally started looking for coaches, career coaches, people review, like a million people reviewed my CV. Everyone was like, no, it's perfect. Um, stalking people on LinkedIn, you know, asking coffee dates, interviews, everything, you name it. I was really sending blind applications, etc. And I only got invited to one interview in that year and a half. 
and I typically nailed the interviews, <laughs> but that was not the case. They still denied me. And this is what I hear also very often on the grounds of, oh, I think you're overqualified for this. So what happens as a problematic is that many of us are overqualified because of our skills, mm -hmm. but underqualified because of language. So they were like, oh, as a communications major and as a gender policy or as a migration or whatever the case it was, uh, you need a native, you know, to be a native German speaker. So then you're like in kind of this really strange limbo. And it made me feel really, really frustrated. Uh, I felt in a burnout without having a job, which is difficult. Yeah, of course. And what's difficult about this, about this emotional, and I didn't have financial responsibility for my family, just for myself. And that yeah. was a tremendous pressure. I can't imagine anybody else who would have the time of family, you know, or that you really don't want it to depend on social welfare. And this is another, you know, yeah. thing that comes a lot in the rhetoric, public rhetoric of migration that people may be lazy and they just don't want to work. And this is really not true based on our data and statistics. People are really mobilizing that networks trying to go out there sending applications. And Switzerland is a tough market because of several reasons, but um, it's definitely not what I expected. So thank you for asking because that was definitely, it was a very, very challenging time yeah. I can imagine but then it's also impressive that you basically took that experience that the problem that you faced yourself and say hey let's build a solution around that and you did that you were seven co-founders in total that's quite a high number so how and where do you actually meet your co-founders how did that happen yeah, so that co-founding model is quite interesting. We we did not meet all at the same time. I'm a later co-founder. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, there was a group actually first when right after the refugee crisis in 2015, a group of individuals, which was quite a large group, I think uh, 25 to 30 people came together to try to address this specific problematic and what they could do. But then out of that 30 people, only two ended up actually working on it. And, you know, when it's large groups, unless it's a kind of a coach system, it's difficult. Right. So then these two uh, co-founders, so the doctor that I talked about before, pitched in one event. And Emily Adams, one of our another co-founder, who is fabulous, and she had just finished her PhD on in the in the UK. And she also had just recently moved to Switzerland, looking for, trying to look for employment, also in a very similar situation. Or, you know, highly skilled, uh, trying to find employment in her work, in her level of work. And then she heard Alexa pitching at an event. I think it was at the Impact Hub or something like that. And she mm -hmm. loved the idea because she also studied human geography in the past. And she said, "Ooh, I, I would love to do that." Alexa, the doctor, didn't have time to do it, but she knew what was the problem and a potential solution. And Emily said, "Oh, let's drive it." And then she found a couple of other people, including uh, a lawyer who's an our currently our chair of the board, Selena Bunkebreder. Uh, and she, um, the, the, I guess that the, the two of them plus a couple of more people started actually doing it. And then I came in as a mentor on the first batch. And because, uh, yeah, it was through their matching system. It was the pilot. And I loved the idea. I was like, oh, gosh, this is right up my alley. I would love to contribute to this. At that time, I had that job that I found. Mm -hmm. But again, this was the danger of being outside of work for a while. I was in a very tough consulting job that was very much uh, not because the job itself but it was very much a uh, mismatch in terms of my personality and what I could do for the community I'm very much about grassroots initiatives working with people and that was a bit separated so um, then I 
definitely fell in love with it. And I told them, I'm here for you. I would love to work with you. After one, I think one and a half years working at the other place, I said, oh, I would love to transition into this field. I'm all yours. And then I started actually doing it as a volunteer, got a very small percentage of work, paid work. And uh, for the next year, this 2017, I went full on into project management. And um, what we realized is that we were invited often to speak and they only wanted to speak with the founder. But I'm a media trained person and they were very frustrated because they were, well, Valentina's capable of, she's the one like leading the program. She Mm -hmm. should be able to speak on behalf of the community and not only Valentina, but anybody else who's, you know, qualified to do that. So then we brainstormed and we created a kind of a co-founding system in which anybody who contributed for a certain amount of time, and of course we had, we have a very specific criteria, could become a co-founder and it was a way to promote and to also more more than promoting someone is a way to co-own an organization and to give ownership to other people who are as in love with the cause and the project and everything we do as I was at the time. So that was a beautiful recognition from my colleagues of my work. And obviously it made me even more motivated to do it. And then we actually established it into this co-founding system. Now we have these seven, uh, around seven of us that are co-founders, including uh, a former uh, entrepreneur and uh, so someone who went through our program. So it really comes from different perspectives and is really beautiful because then we all go beyond this kind of hero co-founder approach. And uh, we really, really appreciate that. And anybody else that would have as much passion for what we do could also potentially become a co-founder. Exactly. And I think this also sort of highlights the power that you have as an organization, whether it's nonprofit or an early stage startup, with the titles, you can also really give appreciation and also really boost people's motivation to make them feel part of it. And I think that's so, so crucial in the early days to really get the most energy out of your organization also. I think so too. I I really vouch for that. And I think one of the most difficult things to do within the startup ecosystem is that when you're going to work for a startup, typically you still feel that you're working for someone else, even if it's a small team. So what we advocate for is not copy pasting this outdated ways of operating that come perhaps from a more archaic way of doing things and actually try to see and challenge how we work today and obviously what works for that team. Everybody has different structures. Obviously, there's a bunch of stuff around holacracy, sociocracy, etc. But you really need to do it correctly coached in a way that still is within a structure so that it works because you still have to have decision-making power uh, at least or power decentralized or centralized in a way, but in a way that makes sense for the organization. Yeah, yeah. Got it. If we also look at your broader team, you have 34 people in total, but only four of them are men. So <laughs> of course, the question comes up, was there a specific effort from your side to seek out female candidates or are women just predominantly more attracted to social impact projects than, than men? That's a super cool, provocative question that I love. And I think that, I mean, looking at it from a gender policy lens, mm-hmm. there are a combination of factors that come into play when when you look at, at the structure of our, an organization like ours. I don't believe that, I mean, and also statistically speaking, there are not that many differences between women and men uh, when it comes to leadership and way of doing things. In fact, there are more differences in between women and women than between women and men. 
But going beyond that, I think that there are there are systems when it comes to the sustainability talk, unless it's embedded within, let's say, impact investment or perhaps fields that are have predominantly been dominated by men, then the conversation can easily go into, I guess, a more female-oriented space. Um, I don't believe that it is inherent. I do know incredibly, you know, incredible men who are nurturing, caring, and possess all kinds of qualities that perhaps we typically attribute to a woman. But I like to break those systems. And what we've noticed is that also the fact that we uh, have been trying to pay a market rate for the work we do. Not that many men within the, the system of Switzerland where typically one person takes care of a household or can take care of a household with one salary, which doesn't happen in many parts of the world, mm -hmm. then um, most of the times the person, if they are within a household system that can afford to do that, is someone who has someone else that has been supporting that or economic load and uh, that happens to be often women and also what we notice is that from most of the volunteers they happen to be women who are actually out of the employment system and what happens when you look at the data from migration at least from that side is that the majority of people who migrate to Switzerland for are for family reasons and the majority who are actually underskilled or actually are not accounted for the unemployment rate are women because they come under perhaps someone else's contract in the family and then they are highly skilled. But what happens is that because they've not had actually a job in Switzerland and not claimed unemployment, yeah. then they are not counted into the unemployment rate. And mm -hmm. this is a really big chunk of our community, especially our our team and on board. So one of this can be one of the reasons why it can be explained. We've never ex excluded uh, men from being with us. We've had actually quite a few men that have come and go, but not necessarily stay as long. We have just the ones that you see are those that have committed to stay longer and are either under retirement or under other circumstances that allow them to do that. Makes sense. And I also wonder, you know, in, in 2015, we had the refugee crisis all over Europe. It, it was like everywhere in the media. So we really had the attention on, on that crisis. You joined Capacity in 2016. So was that also somehow linked to the refugee crisis that you got involved in the initiative? Or is that just a coincidence? That's definitely one of the reasons and many of our of our team members too. Yeah. So what happened is that we got mobilized personally. So for instance, my colleague Isabel, who works and uh, volunteers for many years now as a German teacher in different refugee camps in Switzerland, had also changed from her career, which was in architecture, into our migration or fostering migration talent uh, field. And she's now super knowledgeable in the field, but she did take that as a personal commitment, even with her kids, to go to different areas of the refugee routes uh, to support in, in the middle of summer, you know, bringing her kids so then they could also look at the realities of other individuals outside of Switzerland. And she's personally very, very committed to it. And I think many of us got mobilized through the realities of the migration system that um, it can be very, very tough for many people, especially for asylum seekers and refugees. Water damage or a fire in the office building can mean the end of your startup if you're not properly insured. 
Whether I'm just starting a new company or growing fast, the topic of insurance is often not a top priority. And that's totally fine. Yet, it's hugely important to be properly covered here. On a personal recommendation, I turned to the insurance broker WSR Partner with my first company. The advice is highly professional and completely independent. As an expert, WSR Partner understands the situation of my startup and obtains quotes from various insurance companies so that I can choose the best offer. They are paid directly by the insurance companies. There were no costs for me at all. Because we work with Alex and the team of WSR Partner, we offer you a free consultation. Get independent and professional advice, whether for startups or an insurance check for established companies. Book your free appointment now at www.swisspinner.org WSR. So this is basically also uh, the, the push yeah. that you say, hey, now is really the time to, to get active and do something about that. I think there were two tipping points. That was one. And I think mm-hmm. the second one, which was uh, recently, which you may remember from last year, was after George Floyd's really yeah. m- going mainstream when it comes to talking about anti-racism and uh, advocating for it from a multi-dimensional perspective, from everybody has the responsibility to act in this field. And then we felt a little bit more understood as an organization because then companies were coming to us saying, oh, we need anti-racism, anti-discriminatory training. And I think that was the second part that kind of the moment, the two momentums that drove um, social action when it comes to the work we do. So in, in what way did you feel that at, at capacity? So companies approached you to, to talk to you. What were the results from these talks? Like, did they then, you know, launch a program or an awareness campaign? Or what did they do with you out of these talks? Because talking alone won't change the world, right? Yeah. So uh, this has been a really interesting pivoting moment from us from the beginning is that we found our market, basically. And the market found us in a way. And it's that uh, part of our business model, as even as an NGO, but even if we were not operating as an NGO, is based on a corporate volunteering program. So it's, it's not only corporate, it's institutional volunteering, because you don't have to be in a corporation to be part of our volunteering program. But how it works is that per every person that comes from that specific company or partner sponsoring company, uh, then that allows, or and they can come as a mentor, trainer, or coach, and that allows one participant to go through our program or one of our programs at a subsidized rate. And because of that, we created a very specific system and uh, very uh, consolidated system for volunteering, which includes training on anti-racism, on uh, radical inclusion, on guidelines for inclusive practices, on language, on uh, migration and how to hire refugees and migrants, etc. So it's really an encompassing offer for companies. So they do pay for the participants to come in or for their volunteers. Mm-hmm. And many of them at the beginning are like, oh, why do we pay for people to volunteer for you? And then we say, well, because we are otherwise volunteering for you. Exactly. <laughs> we're giving them value. And through those conversations, actually, we're kind of creating the, a new generation of 
local volunteers who truly care. And we very specifically set targets so that they become advocates of change in their own spheres of influence. So whether they hire, they, you know, bring people into events, they end up speaking in public, they really become ambassadors of, of what we do in terms of fostering migrant talent. I, I love that. I think the educational part there can be super powerful to also have this grassroots initiative again that you so much like. Um, at the same time, I also wonder from the return on investment perspective that is so important for companies. I think I, I get it from my perspective because you can say there is so much untapped potential if you are you know, more open, more diverse, more inclusive, because then you can also really attract the best talent that you would miss otherwise. So there's a huge return on investment for you as a company, potentially, but do the companies also get it or do they actually need a lot of convincing from your side? I think most of the companies who end up working with us and actually approach us are already realizing, um, they know that the business case for diversity is already set. No. Actually, more than 30 years ago, it's been set. But what they realize now is that it's time to take action and it's time for them to really mindfully look beyond gender because gender is the only segment of identity that can be traced legally worldwide. And that's why most companies mm -hmm. started like that. Still not there, <laughs> far from there, but at least doing really active work on the gender front. But what they realize through, again, the topic of anti-racism going more mainstream is that they need to look at other segments of identity when it comes to their workforce. And they look at, they need to look and understand their talent pipelines and not just what's the percentage of people within the company, but where is this percentage distributed? You know, so when you yeah. start to look through, uh, I guess, the lens of, of, intersectional diversity through these companies and where people are located, you realize that worldwide it's a very uneven distribution of power and wealth within the companies, within the talent pipeline. You realize who's at the top and who's at the bottom very, very fast once you clear or you look at transparency when it comes to the data and who is working at each company. So I think companies are realizing more and more the need to work on that because if they don't jump on that wagon, that wagon is going to get to them at some point, you know, Exactly. or it's going to bite their tails at some point. So we, we try to do it from a very light, positive solution based perspective. So then with complex topics like this, it's, it's better to do it in a fun, inspiring way. Yeah, exactly. So that is one part of your business model. You work with corporates in, in terms of the volunteering program, education but also from the program for refugees and migrants, you also ask for a small fee. So the program itself is not completely free of charge. Why, why is that the case? We did, we've always done a deposit-based program from the beginning. Uh, initially it was just a deposit. And then since last year, we decided to put a small fee on it. That is there more as a symbolic price to make sure that people commit, even though we've had a really high rate from the beginning of commitment from the community, mm -hmm. but more for them to understand that there's a value in what they are putting in. And beyond that, actually, is 
even if what we are very clear during the interviews and during the acceptance or recruitment processes is that if someone is under social welfare or cannot pay, that's still not a problem. We can find ways and we will find ways because we know everyone's in a different circumstance. But what we realized is that because we're capturing a market that is so untapped and so in need, we were receiving a lot of applications from migrants who did not fulfill our need and vulnerability criteria. So then this was a way to offer to some of the migrants who we still think we are a good place for them, uh, to offer them to be part of the program, but to be able to pay a fee if they were in the position to pay the fee for the sustainability of the organization itself. But we don't ask for any equity. We don't ask any entrepreneur to give us a st specific percentage of their X, Y years, because we know the struggles of the entrepreneurs and how circumstances in life can be already very difficult. And the aim, I guess, is just self-sustainability at first. Absolutely. And in, in that regard, I also wonder, you know, you, you briefly talked about the business model now, mm. but as an NGO, I can imagine it's still, you know, it, it's so difficult to actually have enough money to execute all of your ideas and really build something up that's also self-sustaining to a certain degree. So how big of a challenge still is the business model or the financial part for you today? Yes, that's a very good question, especially because, as you said at the beginning, we are a team of refugees and migrants for working for refugees and migrants. So we still face a lot of the same challenges that many of our community members or entrepreneurs would face and its access to finance. And we do have a diversified way of looking into our business model, including obviously looking for foundation money and looking for uh, private donors and then our more constant stream of money would come from the corporate volunteering or the institutional volunteering. But when it comes to accessing funds, well, we've every year raised more than the previous year. So we okay. are advancing, but we're not still at a place that we can feel that we're secured for three years. I mean, we know we were speaking briefly before this podcast that or this interview that uh, we were looking, I would love to have a space where the community could come and co-work and, you know, be able to offer that. And we have big dreams for what we would like to do, but we're still short, especially through COVID that obviously gets even more intricate and complicated when it comes to accessing finance. We're learning, we really invite advisors, but most importantly, if any of you listening has a way to open doors for us. Endorsements mean the world. And that's how either for jobs, for our community or for ourselves or for, you know, for our team or for, you know, any of our entrepreneurs, really having endorsements or having someone to vouch for us at the local level makes a huge difference. Do you have any plans to get fully independent from sponsors and donors and really have sort of your own, you know, business models with the corporations, for example, that you do to be completely self-funded? Or is that something that is not that realistic from your perspective? We would love to have at least a hybrid uh form of operating in which at least one of the branches would cross subsidize the other branch of what we do. Mm -hmm. We do see a value on being a nonprofit because we, especially as a tax-free nonprofit, which is a very tough status to get in Switzerland, it also brings, first of all, we don't have to give a return on investment in the form of way of giving money back. So that takes away a little bit of pressure, but we do have an impact model that we do obviously have to report to everybody who donates and contributes to our system. 
but if we do, I mean, we do have some ideas on how we could diversify or become a little bit more self-sustaining because that's important towards the future. But if we do that, it would most likely come from uh, another branch of a for-profit branch of what we do, most likely doing what we do on consulting uh, because our team is qualified to do either consulting on the field or uh, as humanitarian and NGO workers. So then we do bring that that part of the knowledge into into the equation, yeah. And talking about reporting, do you also have any statistics or data about what percentage of businesses were owned by migrants before you actually started capacity and how much it is now these days? Mm-hmm. I don't have the specific number in Switzerland, but I know that across OECD countries, there's a really high incident or number of uh, migrant started businesses. And looking into the Swiss business case, as you know, the backbone of the Swiss economy is based on small and medium enterprises. So for us to look, obviously, at our incubator for a unicorn is obviously not the case, it's not our aim either, but even other incubators in Switzerland can be sometimes from our perspective a waste of resources because what we know is that many especially here in Switzerland uh, there is a really huge potential for for entrepreneurship through all the reasons that I already gave and even in our program if you look at the statistical number or through the state secretariat for migration there's about actually less than two percent refugees in Switzerland that's actually really low for Swiss capacity of what they could do. Yeah, right. But in our program itself, we have uh, 37, 35 refugee, 35% refugees um, from the 115 people that have graduated from our program. That's actually a really high percentage compared to the number of refugees in total that would be in Switzerland. So if you look at it and you put it into perspective, that means that there's a huge appetite, not only from the refugee community, but also from the migrant community, because they know that that's a way to use their skills and to be able to, you know, not de-skill themselves, to be able to restore dignity, to be able to uh, work and make a self-sustaining life. Yeah, the power of entrepreneurship, mm. really. I, I think there's no better expression for, for it than that. Another thing that can be a huge challenge for you from, from my perspective is ensuring the ongoing success. So once the refugees and migrants completed your program, they are basically out there on their own and now it's really time to, to make things happen. So that can still be a huge challenge. So you successfully completed the capacity program, but what happens afterwards? How do you support them and how do you make sure that you also have a lasting impact beyond just the pure program that you go through? Yeah, that's very, a very good question because obviously giving education is a great tool. We look at success not in a linear way that someone would have to, you know, build their company, scale it, launch it, sell it, etc. But more that the person was able to launch their company, register potentially, offer their services, uh, sustain themselves or the, the communities that they sustain back home. Many of them, of our entrepreneurs, we have a cross-geographical impact approach where we know that many of our entrepreneurs operate in their home country. So that's quite interesting from a repatriation standpoint of what they do and how does that affect their economic status in, or economic um, contributions in another part of the world beyond their own families here. And uh, it 
obviously, as when it comes back to your question on how do we support them beyond the program, we have an alumni program that is not funded. So it's purely out of our volunteer time. It's a community. So they have a WhatsApp group, they have a Facebook group, and they're very active. They really come together. It's, you know, more than 115 people that have graduated from more than 68 regions of the world. So it's a very, very diverse community where you don't find only one diaspora of one culture, but actually many. So then once you multiply that of the representation of their diasporas, it's a really, really large community. And what's beautiful about that is that then whenever they launch something, then they know there's a system that allows them to, you know, test, retest, see how they could improve it. They actually started work like many of the former entrepreneurs have given their services to other entrepreneurs or collaborated. We've done some co-founding after math uh, workshops where they end up doing something together. So that's a beautifully unintended consequence of what we do. We do uh, offer, we get a lot of people from the community, which is very, very lovely to see how many people care about what we do and end up giving like, let's say there's this opportunity in like the a specific company and then they want to give seed funding for a group and then we always send all these opportunities that come from companies individuals people that want to collaborate people that want to do something for the community we keep sending all those opportunities we do events actually last friday we had a really beautiful event with our alumni and uh, we offered a specific workshop on uh, entrepreneurial resilience in times of COVID so that we cool. can keep them motivated and for them to know that we're all struggling through COVID and it's just not them. Yeah. yeah. So it's really the power of community in there. Yeah. That's the backbone of capacity. I definitely think that's the backbone of capacity is the power of the community. Yeah. I'm sure you have many success stories to share, but maybe there's one that you can highlight here in, in the episode today. Is there any specific story that you would like to share with us today? Yeah, I'm just smiling because <laughs> we have so many beautiful success stories from our success standpoint. So for us, again, success is not scaling or anything. It's more uh, beyond entrepreneurship. Is also, for instance, if someone found a job in their area of expertise through our community, it's a huge success for us. Or if someone actually ended, right. up, ended up furthering their studies, that's also a success. Okay. But going back to one specific um, example, I want to give one example that is happening right now through the street food festival in Habe, in, in Hauptbahnhof. There is this team of Katri, she's an Afghan refugee, and Kira, who is a student from a Swiss school, uh, quite young. Mm-hmm. And these two are a power, they are powerhouses and they make me smile every time. And SRF um, is going to actually launch. Uh, I can send you the link as soon as, as it comes out in August. We'll put that in the show notes. Yes, uh, of them, of their story. And I want to highlight this story because it's the beautiful epitome of a local supporting a refugee and vice versa. They are both doing this together. So basically they co-founded the business and now they have they are actually crowdfunding for a food truck. So I'll also send you that link. Cool. And what they are doing is that they are offering Afghan food uh, and the Kira and her family basically really wanted to find a way for Katre, who's Afghan, to be able to use her, um, you know, culinary expertise and to be able to offer that and to be able to find, like, actually sustain herself through a job. So then they are really putting all their efforts and resources and uh, also when it comes to the language expertise, etc., 
and uh, Kater is bringing her expertise as a cook and also it's taking her out of her comfort zone. It's a beautiful story of how actually we can mobilize students and not only students and young people, but also kind of bridge different segments of society that do not normally bridge. Um, so I love that this inspired us to think about a co-founding model in which more locals would be able to come and co-found something with our community. Fantastic. That's mm -hmm. like you built your own ecosystem. Exactly. It's really beautiful. So they are right now, I think it is still happening. I don't know if it was until yesterday at Haubanhof, but they're going around. They are called Afghan Lassies and I'll send you the link to their Fantastic. crowdfunding campaign and also their Instagram account. Perfect. Now, you already mentioned your supporters with the corporates, but of course, they are also opponents to a certain degree that you face. And what we basically see these days is all throughout Europe, a nationalist sentiment is rising and more and more people have begun to support parties which call for controlled immigration, closing the borders and etc. And the refugee crisis is a very important part of these discussions. So I also wonder, has Capacity Zurich ever had to face any backlash or to deal with that? Yeah, I think I am in the business of having difficult conversations. <laughs> um, I think in terms of all my different, yeah, I think that should be my title, <laughs> having difficult conversations on a daily basis. <laughs> but definitely, um, this is obviously migration. And with any topic on diversity, they are very, very emotional topics. They are complex topics. They require a lot of dialogue. Everybody feels entitled to say something because they have a specific stand, right? It's the same with gender. They, everybody has a gender. So then everybody feels like they are entitled to say something and the same with migration. And they are. It's free speech. It's, we're, we're here to talk and discuss. Sure. But definitely what you see in the public rhetoric or public discourse when it comes to migration is a very one-dimensional way of looking at the community. And the community is as diverse as you can think. Uh, from only looking at a sample like capacity, what I was just explaining of 68 regions of the world, that's a huge, that covers a really large amount of countries, segments, regions, etc. And that does not account for personality traits, for uh, kinds of things and interests, for, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds. But what we notice is that um, it's definitely what's highlighted, it it tends to perpetuate stereotypes that do not uh, help or advance the process. And which what we try to do in terms of advocacy or when we encounter a situation like that is to bring back our, I guess, human libraries and our stories of what does actually migration beyond an overarching topic mean? What, the, what actually we're human beings within these stories, right? I'm more than the daughter of an illegal migrant, right? I'm more than a Latin American migrant in another country. Right. Yeah. I have many more things to contribute than that. And that's also kind of reframing migration from a positive perspective. And we do training on storytelling for our participants and our entrepreneurs to mm -hmm. re stories and tell it from a place of of strength and that's very difficult and emotional and we also bring people from the public sometimes we do these storytelling sessions in public so that's our legacy of bringing people that may still be a little bit like oh i don't think so and we've had all kinds of conversations around this obviously they are tough there's backlash but that's part of our advocacy work and i think it's part of living in a complex world where we all have different experiences yeah, but, but I love what you're doing there because that will also help in the future to really change people's perception 
of migrants and refugees and hopefully have a more open, uh, you know, sort of society that can uh, have a different perspective and also uh, is open to different people from all over the world. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. And yes, that's definitely what happens, what we see in our impact on evaluation even just looking at the sample of what we do and our data, uh, we know that the majority of mentors and coaches end up learning more from their mentees than actually yeah. our mentees from them. It's not that they don't learn from them, but they actually have more realizations throughout the throughout the process of coming together in a space that was foreign to them before. And that breaks, I guess, for us, one of our I guess for me personally, and for the team, one of our favorite hobbies is disrupting stereotypes. And I think these spaces, whenever we have, you know, pitch nights, most people that come to us and get interested in what we do come and say like, oh my goodness, I I, I really didn't know that I had so many blind spots around this. Uh, I really thought that I was going to go and see, you know, it's really going beyond like, oh, I'm here to help the poor refugee and really kind of change that entire even language and from saying helping to saying I'm here to accompany you to support you to be with you to allow you to shine and I think that's looking and also putting the community of migrants and refugees in a space like entrepreneurship it allows them to look at other people on an eye to eye level and that that in and out of itself is very revolutionary for many people who have not experienced it and they come and they're like oh wait what they're like normal people and we're like, yeah, we're normal people. But, exactly. but for them, there's still a very much the other and what they've heard about refugees yeah. or what they've heard about migrants. And yeah. by getting to know them, they actually change that perspective. And I also think that exchange on an eye-to-eye level and not on the hierarchical level is so important to actually also benefit on both sides. One of the, our favorite exercises when we have a new batch of mentors, coaches coming into our program is that we ask them, can you please uh, introduce yourself without saying what you do for a living or where you come from? And when you do that, I mean, especially people who have been in a corporate setting for a long time, it makes them think and it's very hard. Sometimes they even say it. Sometimes they're like, hi, I'm blah, and I come from this company. You're like, eh, you're not allowed to say that. (laughs) Yeah. But it's funny how it takes time for people to come to that eye-to-eye level. But yeah. once they do, they realize the, the, beautiful, the beautiful potential on actually doing that at an other context to beyond capacity. Yeah. You would just say, I like having difficult conversation and disrupting stereotypes. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's my job title forever. <laughs> So if you look at the numbers, you had more than 115 or almost 120 participants that actually graduated from Capacity Zurich from more than 60 regions from all over the world. So of course, you also wonder what's next for Capacity. What do you have planned? Any new initiatives, new ideas that you want to tackle? So if you're listening out there and you really would like to contribute and you're in any other part of Switzerland or even just also in in Zurich or in another part of the world and you would like to launch or help in contributing in this kind of or or creating something similar like what we do in Zurich in another region, we would like to talk to you because that's part of our next steps on the scaling. Uh, Definitely regionally as in Switzerland or nationally as in Switzerland, uh, but beyond that, uh, the, the community or I guess the, yeah, the community of people working in our field is still very, very little worldwide. And there's a lot of work to be done. There's, there needs to be many more, many more of us doing that work and offering that work. 
And apart from that, I, I would say a digitalization journey of our education programs because they are very much tailored to the migrant experience, which is not the case with the majority of entrepreneurial uh, programs. Yeah. Nice. So exciting future ahead. Yeah. So do contact us and we would be happy to hear from you. We also like to ask our guests about their favorite resources and gadgets. So I think you have a book list prepared or something. So what, what do you have in mind? Like, what can you share with our uh, listeners in terms of resources and mm. gadgets? So definitely irrespective of race and however you identify yourself, uh, reading books like White Fragility is very important because it allows you to understand your world from a multi-dimensional perspective. I love the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Nice. Even though it's not fully related to migration, it's related to how we look at personality traits and how that is also a way and a lens to actually get away from binaries, from positioning people into either or, and rather understanding a person as hey, who are you and yeah. how can we work together and how, what can you most importantly complement to our team as opposed to we finding people that fit our systems. So basically, if I can think of, of a tool that you can use is looking around your circles and seeing how similar people are to you. And if you find yourself in similar in circles that are incredibly similar to you, maybe it is a time for you to start looking of, of ways of understanding the world from other pe people's perspectives and experiences. Yeah. And um, let me think, I love a couple of podcasts. I love the podcast called I Way by Jamila Al-Jamil. Uh, Jamila Jamil, Jamila, I, I forgot her. I, I will send it to you as well, but sure. it's I Way. And it really goes quite profoundly on all these topics we talked about today. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I can think of many more, but I can probably send them to you. So we'll put them in the show notes. At least these this three are the top. Cool. Thank you so much. And as a last segment of today's episode, we have some rapid fire questions for you. I give you a short question and, you know, I know it will be difficult, but try to answer in one or two uh, sentences. Are you Ooh, ready? Yes. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? <laughs> Uninterrupted sleep nonstop because I have a two-year-old daughter who breastfeeds. So yeah, then <laughs> I cannot count it. I don't know how many hours. <laughs> I can understand. What does diversity mean to you? Opportunity and colorful and understanding our uniqueness. Well, well put. What do you go to think? Probably the shower. How often do you change your mind? All the time. And after living in so many different countries all over the world, which one would you call your home or your favorite place? I would ask you to watch a tech talk by Taya Selassie called "Ask Me." Don't ask me where I'm from. Ask me where I feel local. And what's the answer for you? Where do you feel local? Ooh, Zurich, Singapore, Paris, Bogota, yeah. Los Angeles. And New York. That's a pretty nice selection. <laughs> yes. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Valentina. And we wish you, you lots of success and all the best with capacity. And it's really, you know, impressive what you do, what you build. All the best for the future. Thank you so much. Giving voice to our community is really 
your contribution towards a more just and equitable world. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.